All right. Well, uh, man, good morning. How are you guys doing? That was really loud. Good. Well, blessed. Good. Awesome. Do I need to shut off? Okay. Thanks, Everett. Uh, <laughs> Everett, Everett is the, the guy that does all the magic behind the scenes. Uh, we're convinced his name in Greek uh, means glue, like he keeps us together. Um, sorry, that kind of threw me off a little bit. What are we going we're gonna, to? We're going to be in the Bible. So we're going to find ourselves. Let me tell you where we're going to go, and then I'll just get caught up. Look, it's been one of those mornings where you're just kind of frantic and running around, and I think one of the good things is that I, I didn't feel alone. Our team has kind of been like that all morning. So as I pray, be praying for them and me, just because it's been, you know, it's one of those mornings that uh, everything is not where it should be, and so we're running around, right? But nevertheless, we're going to find ourselves in Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. We're only going to be looking at two verses today. So while you uh, open or load your Bible, let me kind of just rant a little bit until I kind of get caught up to where we're supposed to be. And so today, we're starting a new sermon series in the book of Philippians titled, Citizens. Uh, I'm really excited about walking through Philippians. Philippians is, uh, man, just a personal favorite. Um, there's a lot of things that are unpacked that, 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 that the Apostle Paul unpacks in Philippians. Several themes. I'll talk about that in just a minute. Kind of give you a brief history. Uh, give us some context. Give us a little bit of background. I'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, but before we get there, while you're turning to that, we're starting Citizens, number one. Number two, let me kind of give you uh, sort of an idea of where we're headed for the summer. And I know it sounds weird to say because we're only about six weeks out, but nevertheless, it's coming. And so we're going to find ourselves in Philippians through the beginning of June, and then we're going to take a break, and we're going to do a summer series on the Beatitudes, right? So we'll be in the Beatitudes throughout the summer. Once school picks back up, we tend to follow the school calendar. Once school picks back up, we'll jump back into Philippians and finish sometime around in the fall. So that's kind of the schedule. On top of that, should you be new or if you've been visiting for a couple of weeks or maybe this is your first time on your chair, there should be some connect cards. Be sure to fill them out. Leave them in the offering basket. We'd love to hang out. We'd love to plug you in, but we'd also love to pray for you. So be sure to fill those out should you be new or been with us for the past couple of weeks. Now, Walking into Philippians. Before I jump into verses 1 and 2, uh, before I, I pray, let me just kind of give you a little bit of a background in light of, of Philippians. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Philippians uh, introduces several themes. Um, Paul walks through several themes in this letter. Uh, this letter is referred to by many as uh, several things. This is a support letter. This is a letter where Christology is probably one of, if not the greatest theme and introduced. Christology being the study of the, the life, work, and death of Jesus. Paul uh, unpacks and talks about Jesus in Philippians in a way that isn't necessarily presented in other letters. That doesn't mean he doesn't talk about Jesus in his other letters. But when, with regard to Philippians, the depth and the density of the work, life, and resur resurrection of Jesus is quite profound. So that's that. Let me tell you a little bit about how Philippi got started. And then, like I said, we'll, we'll kind of jump into our time. 
So when the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians, he wrote it around 62 A.D. Now, this is 10 years after his first visit to Philippi. Uh, If you're a history nerd, if you love to see at the start of things or how things got started in the Bible, how churches got planted, you can see the start of Philippi in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, verses 9 through 40. That's in your notes if you want to do some research Uh, and look into it over the course of uh, this week, totally uh, encourage it. But if we do play a little bit and we go into Acts 16, one of the things that we see is that Paul is given a vision. He's given a vision to go to Macedonia and specifically land in Philippi. He lands in Philippi, and upon landing there, right, the first thing he does is that he wants to go to the synagogue or the temple. He wants to find out or see where the Jewish people are. But there are none. And the reason there are none is because Philippi, named after Philip II, who's Alexander the Great's dad, right? Philippi was this province that the Roman government said, hey, all the, the Roman veterans, all the dudes who have been fighting these battles, your, uh, your, kind of your retirement fund is a bunch of land. So we're going to hook you up with a ton of land here in Philippi. That, that's your retirement package. That's your, that's your 401k, Right? And so Philippi was mainly comp- uh, compromised of, of uh, uh, it's a military community. And so tons of people are there. Philippi is also supposed to be kind of this mirror image of Rome. And so Paul goes to Philippi and he's like, man, where are the synagogues? Where are the temples? I'm trying to find the Jewish people here. And he doesn't find them in the city. He actually goes outside the city walls and he runs into a group of people, one of uh, who's a woman. Her name is Lydia. She's mentioned in Philippians. We'll cover that later. He runs into her, shares the gospel with her. I mean, he, gets, he just goes straight to work, right? He like starts evangelizing, shares the gospel with this woman named Lydia, uh, and she submits her life to Jesus. She then invites Paul, and he was with a guy named Silas. He invites Paul and Silas over to her house. Her entire household then submits their lives to Jesus, which is very cool. So Paul is not wasting any time. On top of that, that group that she was a part of, there was a woman who was possessed by a demon, and she continued to shout uh, that these are men of God, these are men of God, these are men that know Jesus. And uh, at some point, you see this in Acts, Paul actually got pretty annoyed that she kept on talking, so he uh, brings the demon out of her, casts the demon out of her, uh, and the people who owned this woman got really upset that he did that, so they grab him and Silas, chunk him into the middle of the city, and uh, they say, man, these guys are doing a bunch of different things weird things that us Roman citizens wouldn't necessarily approve of. And so they beat up Paul and Silas and then throw them into prison. That's kind of, so that's how Philippi got started. While in prison, and all of this is in Acts 16, I'm giving you the Cliff Notes version. A lot of this stuff, this language isn't necessarily there. Nevertheless, so while in prison, man, Paul isn't, man, he's still on the clock. You know what I'm saying? Like, Paul's in prison. He's preaching the gospel to whoever's going to be listening. There's a jailer who is there, um, and he is hearing Paul sing, and he is hearing Paul talk about uh, the gospel of Jesus. And at some point, I guess I'm, I'm moving far ahead, at some point, this Roman jailer ends up submitting his life to Jesus, invites Paul and Silas over to his family, Uh, or to his house, and that dude's family starts serving Jesus. 
right? And that yet they're still kind of prisoners. You can read about that in a little bit. They finally get released. And then ultimately, uh, the church in Philippi, that was a lot of history all at once. The church in Philippi ultimately gets started. It gets started with a woman named Lydia, her family, this Roman jailer, his family, and potentially this once-possessed demon girl. That's who uh, the, the church in Philippi gets started off with. And that is also at the same time that this is a, excuse me, that is also at the time, the first time that Paul visits Philippi. The letter to the Philippians or the letter to, to the Philippian church is written 10 years after all that happens. So at this point, they are established. At this point, they have church leadership. They have grown. They are thriving. And the church in Philippi was actually one of the only churches that not only prayerfully supported Paul, but also financially supported him. So the letter is also his way of thanking them and giving them updates on what's going on in his life, how things are in prison, and encouragement. Us as a church, we prayerfully partner with missionaries and organizations, and so we're constantly praying for them, like at, like at night of prayer where we deliberately take time away to pray for them and the work God has called them to. But also as a church, not only do we prayerfully partner with people or organizations, we also financially support missionaries and organizations. And so we pray for them as we know that they are laboring in the work that God has called them to. And so Paul's relationship with the Philippians is a little bit different than kind of the other relationships he had with the other churches. It's one that is uh, marked with dear and personal friendship. And so when he writes to them, he's not only writing to them with an endearing heart, but he's also writing to them to encourage them. He's also writing to them to disciple them. And he's also writing to them, again, with this profound and dense approach in light of the life the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Some of the themes that are talked about in Philippians are joy, citizenship, right? Because this was a Roman colony, the people who lived in Philippians or in Philippi, people who lived there were proud Roman citizens, kind of like Texas, Everybody's really, you know, in Texas, it's a real Texas pride, right? That whole, that whole jazz, right? This is the whole thing. There was Roman citizens that were big into their citizenship. And so the language that Paul uses in this letter is very specific. It's very intentional and it's deliberate. We'll talk more about that in a second. Now, with all that kind of going on, I don't want to necessarily dive too deep into the history of the church in Philippi, primarily because as we walk through the letter, Paul is going to reference a lot of things from the past, and we'll knock those out as we get there. But I do want to say, throughout this time, as we talk about joy and citizenship, I think those are going to be really great things to walk through. We just walked through our time in Habakkuk, where there's this really big theme of joy, Where I want to take us to regarding Philippians is before we get to joy and before we get to citizenship, we need to talk about Jesus first, right? That's where we're going to find ourselves. So let me read Philippians 1, verses 1 through 2, and then uh, then we'll dive into the rest of our time. And I'll pray and then we'll dive in. Here we go. This is Paul. This is what he says. Paul and Timothy. So Timothy is with Paul at this time. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we venture into your word, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would ultimately reveal himself to us, not just through the preaching, but through the reading of your word. That even in in two verses, we can ground ourselves deeper in our faith and that we can embrace a stronger, more firm understanding of your son Jesus. Lord, there's a ton of things going on, you know, after church, like lunch and family get-togethers. There might be even things going on right now. And Lord, I pray that we could set those aside briefly so that we would hear from you, so that we would be convicted and challenged by your Holy Spirit, and ultimately praise you and glorify you for not just the things that you reveal, but for what you call us to do. And so, Lord, we love you, and we thank you for this time. Thank you for my brothers and sisters joining me here this morning. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. All right, here we go. You guys ready? We're going to nerd out a little bit. You guys cool with that? Okay, here we go. I love that this is up. All right. So one thing that I want you to notice, we're going to walk through three different things in these two verses. Right? I actually wanted to just stick with verse 1, but they said no. So we're just going to look at these two verses, and we're going to unpack several things that Paul writes about. The first thing that I want you to notice is that just in two verses, he mentions the name of Jesus three times. That should give you some sort of an introduction as to how much Paul is going to talk about Jesus and his work throughout the entirety of this letter. So he mentions the name of Jesus three times. So that's the first thing we're going to talk about. Okay, I'm going to give you what we're going to talk about, and then I'll jump into them. The second thing that I want you to notice is the language, the choice of words that Paul uses. Remember I told you, when he writes to the Philippians, Romans, Galatians, whoever, he is incredibly intentional and deliberate about the language that he chooses to use. And so the second thing that we're going to talk about is the word servants and the word saints. That's number two. So if you're taking notes, uh, write it down, or uh, you can download our app. This is like a nice pitch into that. Download our free app. The notes should be on there. Uh, So servants and saints. That's the second thing that we're going to be talking about. Uh, And this is really hard because I want to talk about more. But for the sake of time and not being here four hours, we'll just talk about three things. The third thing that we're going to talk about is at the end of verse 2, where he says, grace to you and peace from God. So we're going to be talking about grace and peace. And those three things are ultimately going to connect our entire time today. All right? guys cool with that? All right, here we go. The first thing, as I mentioned, before we talk about joy, before we talk about citizenship, before we even talk about encouragement throughout the letter of Philippians, we first must talk about Jesus. We need to talk about Jesus because we need to have a firm understanding on the person and work of Jesus. And so I'm just going to give you a little bit of background about Jesus, should we have forgotten, because we tend to do. I know I do, right? 
You see, at the heart of this letter is the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That is, God who became man and took the form of a humble servant. Now that's something I want you to hold on to because as he writes, or as Jesus says in Matthew, I came uh, to serve, not to be served. Now that's something I want you to have at the back of your mind because that's something we're going to be talking about, not just through our time this morning, but ultimately through our time in Philippians. So God who became man and took the form of a humble servant. Here's what I love about Jesus is that, man, uh, he stepped into our lives by moving in. Literally by moving in. Took the form of a humble servant. And here's, here's what, we, what we know, right? From the time he was about 30, there was nothing really spectacular about his life. He was a carpenter. He went to work with his dad. He swung a hammer. Uh, and then at the end of the, that time, he went into full-time ministry for three years, preaching, teaching, and healing people, investing in 12 dudes for those three years. And at the end of those three years, he was murdered. That's what we know. And that's a, a quick rundown, that he was murdered. And he was murdered for saying that he was God. And yet none of that was outside of his plan. None of that came as a surprise. So much in the sense that as he was falsely accused, as he was falsely tried, as he was beaten and whipped, he went and took his cross and ultimately was crucified and died on this cross for sinners. Now we can end it there, but we're not going to because that's not what we do here. He died for sinners on the cross, paying the penalty of our sin with his own life. With his own life. Now, if that's like, well, I don't, I don't get that. Make, like, help me make better sense of that. Here's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. The work by which we are now reconciled to the Father. Reconciled is an SAT word that means that we have relationship with him. Right? Okay? So if you went to public school, you, you're good. Right? So uh, where was I? So the work by which we are now reconciled to the Father has now been complete through the sacrifice of the Son. Through the sacrifice of the Son. And on the cross, what happened? God died. That's what happened. And he said, it is finished. The work by which we may be reconciled to the Father through the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice of the Son has been finished. But it doesn't end there, right? It doesn't end there. See, he was brought down, he was buried, and then three days later, he resurrected. And he resurrected to show that he had conquered death, sin, Satan, hell, demons, and ultimately the wrath of God. So what does that mean for the believer? Redemption. It means new life. And today, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is alive, and trust me, he is well. I promise you that he is well. And so as Christians, until he returns, which he will one day, he will return in glory to judge the living and the dead and ultimately to reclaim his bride, the church. Until that day comes, you and I eagerly, actively wait. 
you and I eagerly and actively wait. And we wait by subjecting ourselves to his will in light of what he's done. And what has he done for the believer? Man, he has made the believer go from death to life, that we were dead in our sins. We prayed it right now in the Lord's Prayer that we were dead in our trespasses, but through the work of the Son, we are now made alive in him. So what that prayer tells us is that it's God's initiation to wake up the dead person. It is he who works in the person and brings him from dead, death to life. And that's Jesus. That's a, that's a, I don't know how long that was. That was a three-minute uh, bio of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In addition to all of that, one of the things I would like to say, Scripture teaches that Jesus, this is actually in Hebrews, that Jesus is our high priest who can sympathize with us. Now we're going to get into his life a little bit. Now, why I want to bring that up is because I think that's particularly very important, especially in our culture, in our day, that he is a high priest who can sympathize with us. That means that he was tempted with the very same things that you're tempted with. And that should give you a glimpse into the life we're ultimately going to have. Here's what I mean. God is not... Your genie. Okay? We're just, right, we're going to use that language. We're just going to put everything on the table. God is not your genie. One of the things that we looked at regarding Habakkuk over these past couple of weeks is that that guy's circumstance never changed. But the condition of his heart did. Yet you and I continue to battle When things get hard, we continue to battle with that season and we continue to battle with God saying, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this to me? Or if you're so holy, why don't you change this? How could a loving God allow this? God is not your genie. So we just put that on the table. And I say that because in light of calamity and suffering and iniquity, God uses that to draw us closer to himself. God uses that to change the condition of our hearts. We talked a little bit about this last week, so this might be a recap at the end of Habakkuk. That doesn't mean your circumstance is going to change. I'm not talking about your circumstance. Although it may be really serious, although it may be something, man, that we should definitely pray for. I'm not knocking that. But when we suggest that God is our genie and should do the things that we feel he, we're entitled to, that means that we have an immature understanding of the gospel, that we have an immature understanding of the life, the work, and the, excuse me, yeah, the life, work, death of Jesus. That means that we miss it all of the time. That if we look at everything circumstantially, well, we're never going to be satisfied because God isn't at work. God is not your genie. What I loved about our time in Habakkuk is that God doesn't change Habakkuk's circumstance, but instead he turns it around and forces Habakkuk to look at himself. 
He forces Habakkuk to look at himself in light of what God is doing. I think that's where we need to be because we're really quick to look at what culture is doing, what culture is saying. We're really quick to look at the news and look at all of these things. And God, why don't you? Maybe God isn't done yet. Maybe God isn't done restoring all things because he's going to come one day. He's going to come back one day. And until then, we wait while he works. And we wait actively, right? We wait actively. And so more than looking at the circumstances we find ourselves in or the circumstances we wish we find ourselves in, we found ourselves in, we look to the work of Jesus and who he says we are. Because I think that's incredibly important. Because all today, we're not going to talk about activity. We're just going to talk about identity. The only activity that we're going to talk about is the work of Jesus on the cross. And so in light of him communicating and in light of his work and him telling us who we are, it leads us to the next part. It leads us to saints and servants. So let's talk about that. Now we have this, this clear picture of what Jesus has done, who Jesus is doing, and who Jesus is. Now we look to saints and servants. I could have switched it and gone servants and saints to go in order. Maybe I was in a rush. Don't know. But we'll just go with saints anyway and then crawl back up to servants. Now, when we talk about saints, Paul is saying that he is writing to the saints at the church of Philippi, right? To all those who are in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Now, when we read the word saints, many of you, right, well, better yet, come from like a Catholic background, right? I have family that comes in from uh, the Roman Catholic background. There are some people who love Jesus who are in the Catholic church. Man, that's cool. We do have some disagreements, though. Right? Putting everything on the table, we do have some disagreements, especially when we read the word saint. When we read the word saint, we're like, whoa, I don't know. I don't know about that. Usually when I think of saint, I think of dudes like St. Peter, St. Michael, St. Jude. I'm just naming names, but all these saint people, right? Those are perfect people. Those are on top people. Those are people who have done a world of amounts of work, and that's totally not me. Right? But Paul in Philippians, when he says to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus at the church in Philippi, he's talking to the believers. So, for the purpose of distinction, we're going to walk briefly through that. You see, when we look at Roman Catholic tradition and when we look at sainthood, there's a five step process. Now, all of this could be taken out of their database. This isn't anything that I'm making up. You can look at the Catholic Department of Education. And you can see that there are five steps in light of Roman Catholic tradition. And we're going to back that up eventually with Scripture. So the first step to sainthood is you got to be dead. You, you, I don't know how else to say it. So you need to be dead, right? You need to, you, you need to be dead and you needed to have died uh, or lived a life that is called a fame of sanctity or fame of martyrdom. You had to have gone... <laughs> You left this earth like, I don't know, fighting for the church and, and Jesus, right? That's, think of it that way. Now, the bishop of diocese will see this and he will say, man, so-and-so lived this kind of life, right? So what we're going to do now is we're going to put it in an application. 
we're going to put this application in and we're going to do an investigation. So they send off this person's application after they have died. They send off this application. They go through a bunch of things. This application then gets sent uh, to the congregation of the causes of the saints where they do really deep research on this individual. They argue whether or not he would be good for the next step or even sainthood. And they work through all of those things. They look through the things that that individual has written or talked about, and that's called a purity of doctrine. And so they're like, man, has this happened? Has this dude done all of these things? If that has gone through and the application gets okayed and the congregation's like, yes, let's go ahead and move into the next step. The next step is that they are made venerable, which means that they are made uh, kind of like, a, uh, they're made holy. Like they're, they're, they're kind of this big deal. They're holy, they're, they're of utmost respect and sanctity. And so they kind of stay there while the application or this candidate is still walking through this process. If all goes well, they go into beautification. In beautification, what they are looking for are miracles that are performed. Uh, this is the part where I get, it got a little murky, where I'm not sure if there needed to be a miracle done before they died, or there needed to be three miracles done after they died. Either way, that's still part of the investigation. And if all goes well there, they go from venerable to beautification to blessed. At the stage of being blessed, if the Pope says, hey man, this guy's like legit. I don't know if that's how he says it, but he's like, yeah, thumbs up. He goes to sainthood and they have like a special ceremony and they have mass and all of this stuff, right? Got it. Cool. Those are the five steps to sainthood within the Roman Catholic Church. And I think oftentimes when we read the word saint, I'm not bashing, I'm just making a distinction. Uh, when we read the word saints, we kind of tend to push back a little bit because it's like, no, 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 that, that's something that is not me. I, I could never be that, which technically is true. But the conception or the misconception that most of us tend to have is, man, those are people on stained windows. Like uh, those are people that, that others pray to. Like that's a big deal. Now, according to the Bible, what we see a saint is, is someone who is holy, now, the definition for someone who is holy is someone who has been set apart. Set apart by God. Right? Set apart by God. That is the definition of a saint in Scripture. Someone who has been set apart from, uh, by God. And it requires one step. Faith in Christ Jesus. Faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible teaches... That in order to be just, in order to be set apart, holy, the Bible teaches that in order for that to happen, God accepts us on the condition of faith alone, not our works or merit, but by faith alone. That's the step. So I know it sounds weird because mainly, especially the area that we live in and stuff like that, but man, should you belong to Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, by definition, you are a saint. Some of you are like, I don't know about that. I know, but you are. So just say thank you. That's like, not for me, right? But that's, that is what it is, right? Let's, let's, we're just calling it. Sounds weird because it's like, man, I am... That's, whoa, that's like super holy. Well, man, hey, holy according to scripture means set apart, that we have been set apart by God. And that set apart means that he accepts us on the condition of faith alone, not our work or merit. Oh, 
right? So, you know, write it on your resume. <laughs> so that's saint. That, that is the first thing. So what we know is that Paul makes a big deal about Jesus, and he makes a big deal about who we are, right? He makes a big deal about who we are, that we are saints, that we have been set apart, that we have been set apart by faith alone, that the work that has been accomplished has not been yours, but Christ Jesus' work. So that's why we talk about saints, the next word that we were looking at is servant. Now, here's another one. Man, saints and servants, those are words that were just like, I don't know, man. Saints is one thing. Servant is another. The reason I say servant is another is because the Greek word for the term servant is slave. Everyone's like, whoa, whoa, I was kind of with you with the saint one, and now we're going into slave, Right? Here's what Paul is saying when he writes, Paul and Timothy, slaves or servants of Christ Jesus. Number one, he is choosing that word on purpose and deliberately. We're going to get, remember I told you we're going to get nerdy. He's choosing that word on purpose and deliberately. If you read his other letters, for example, the letter to the Romans, he writes that he is an apostle of Jesus. To the church in Corinth, he says it again, I'm an apostle of Jesus. And he was very deliberate about introducing himself that way for two different reasons. To the church in Rome, in Rome, there's a bunch of thinkers and philosophers and astrologists. So he was calling, he was referring to himself as an apostle to show his status. To the church in Corinth that was doing a bunch of other things like Christians gone wild type of thing, right? Paul was saying, I am an apostle of Jesus to show his authority. You follow me on that? We're all there? Okay, cool. To the, uh, to the Philippians, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. So there is a respect, there is a humble, uh, excuse me, there is a respect toward the Philippians, and there is a humble attitude towards serving them. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew, I came to serve, not to be served, right? We talked about that a while ago. So when Paul references or calls himself a slave, what he is saying is that his entire life is now marked by the work of Jesus and Jesus in him. In other words, Paul isn't just a servant of Jesus at community group. He's not just a Christian on Sundays at 1030. He's not just a Christian when he prays for the two meals that he has over the course of seven days. You know what I mean? Like what he is saying is that his entire life is now marked by the person and work of Jesus. That it is a 24-7 thing all of the time. Who he is is marked by the work of Jesus done for him forever. Not eight to five, not on Sundays only, not on Thursday nights, none of that jazz, always. Always. The practical side of this and the thing that we need to talk about is still that term slave. Because here's, the, here's a, as we're putting everything on the table, here's something else that we're going to put on the table, yeah? Everyone's a slave. Everyone's a slave. The question is, who do you serve? Right? The question is, who do you serve? Now, I'm going to talk to two different groups of people. I'm going to talk to the people that immediately think about things like drug abuse, alcohol, man, sex, pornography, all of those things. We're going to drill towards that, like, because 
What we're going to say in that is, man, if you are addicted to alcohol, man, you're a slave to drunkenness. If you're addicted to sex and pornography, you're a slave to perversion. If you're addicted to drug abuse, you're a slave to to drugs. I I don't know how else to say it. But then there's this other side where people will then say, man, I'm glad I'm not doing those things. But let me tell you, you can be a slave to your pride, to success, to your achievement, to your good grades. You can be a slave to that just as easy. You can be a slave to people because you're constantly looking for acceptance. You can be a slave to success because you're constantly looking to see uh, status. You want to get that bachelor's degree. You want to get your high school diploma. You want to get your master's. You want to obtain a certain title, whatever that looks like. We're going on both sides of this. We're not looking only at what is bad. We're looking at all of it. You can be a slave to all of it. And so what we're going to do is let's look at Romans 6 for better context as we talk about this issue. This is Romans chapter 6, verses uh, 15 through 18. This is what Paul writes. He says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. You're, you're going to be a slave. It's either going to be a sin or righteousness. Now, the thing about slavery when we talk about it is that, man, this is something that you're, um, you've been put into because of debt. You were bought into it. There's a ton of different things that are horrific in nature that we can talk about concerning slavery. When we talk about slavery concerning that of being a slave to righteousness, it should lead us to redemption. Remember, we're getting nerdy. Stay with me. The Greek word for redemption, it's, uh, it's called extra garanzo, which means to be purchased out of and to never return. Now, let's apply that to biblical terms. What we see Jesus do is that Jesus goes to the cross and purchases us out of slavery with his blood so that we would never return to our sin. Follow me on that? Told you we were going to get nerdy. Okay? The work of Jesus on the cross, the work of redemption, means that Jesus purchased us out of slavery to our sin, and he paid really good money for it. He paid his own blood. And he purchases purchases us out of slavery to our sin to never return back to it. That's the key. It's not just that you were bought out of. There's a second part to redemption, that you were bought out of your sin to never return. To never return. So your life is now marked by what Jesus has done. Said a different way, your life is now marked by redemption. Your life is now marked by redemption from the, uh, from the blood of Jesus. So when we talk about saints and servants, I get it. It's a little uncomfortable. But when we dive into the meaning, 
it should lead us to this deeper, more mature understanding of what Christ did on the cross. That he has purchased us out of slavery to our sin so that we would never return. Which means who you once were is not who you are anymore. That's what he means. That's what he means. And so then we launch into the third part, grace and peace. When we talk about saints, when we talk about servants, we need to talk about how we got there. It's through the work of Jesus, but what is it that he gives us? He gives us grace and peace. See, all of what we just talked about, to be in Christ, is impossible outside of the grace of God. Grace is defined as unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Not a result of our strength or intellect or capabilities. See, grace is freely offered, and it is grace by which we are saved and reconciled. Remember that word. It means relationship. We are saved and reconciled. Outside of Christ, hear me on this, outside of Christ, we are dead in our sin and incapable of moving toward God. So God comes to us, motivated by love and shaped by holiness. How do we know this? We look to Jesus. What did Jesus do? He entered into human history. I think a better way of saying that is that he entered into the, li- into the mess that we call life. That's how we know that he is motivated by love and shaped by holiness. This is uh, uh, Carl Truman. He writes, Grace is not God giving wholesome advice or a helping hand. It is God raising someone from the dead. First Christ and then those who are in Christ. Additionally, Paul in Titus chapter 3 verses 4 through 6 writes, but when the goodness and kindness, or excuse me, by when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, that's Jesus, he saved us, not because of works done in us in us by righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Man, what is mercy? Not getting what we deserve. That's what mercy is. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So we talked about being accepted before God on the condition of faith alone, only to talk about being saved by God through grace alone. Through grace alone. And as a result of grace, we have peace. We have peace. Now, I'm not talking, remember, I'm not talking circumstantially. But we have peace. See, outside of Christ, we're constantly in rebellion of Him. We constantly reject Him. And yet, through His grace and Him calling us to Himself, in Christ we are no longer at war with God. Because our identity does not rest on our activity but in the work of God toward us. It is when we get there, it is there that the peace of God is present. It is when we get there that the peace 
of God is present. Let me, let me segue back to Habakkuk. Remember, his circumstance did not change. And he did several things that led him to joy and peace. It was relationship with God that led to the truth about God, that led to worship of God, that finally drove him to have joy in God. So for the Christian, we can obtain or have joy and peace as a result of what Jesus has done, our relationship with him, what we know about him, who he says we are, and it leads us to joy and peace. It leads us to grace and peace, right? And so here's what I leave you with, y'all. Before we impart things like joy and citizenship, we must first be in Christ. That term, which Paul uses several times in this letter, in Christ means that we have union with him. We have union with him. We must first be in Christ, reconciled to the Father. That means we have access and relationship to the Father. Reconciled to the Father through the work of the Son. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we close our time, as we close our time this morning, Lord, Lord, I'm... uh, I'm sure I speak for many, but I'm, I'm just going to speak for myself. I am very, very quick to forget uh, who you say I am. Uh, for me, it doesn't matter how, how many books I read or, or reminders I have. I am so quick to forget who I am. And, I'm, and I, I feel like I'm not the only one. But when we read and especially unpack what you have for us, uh, through Paul in Philippians, Lord, my, my hope, the encouragement I have, and the hope that I want everyone else to have to obtain is that that introduction, verses 1 through 2, is a beautiful reminder of the work of your son Jesus, who he says we are, and the relationship we have with you because of him. And so, Lord, that, 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 that's kind of trippy. But my prayer in that is that as we, as we close this time, that, Lord, that we would confess and repent of our sin. I know, I know we're going to talk about tithes and offerings and all that stuff, but, but my biggest thing is, Lord, that we would confess and repent of our sin, that we would, we would see just how much you hate sin, which in turn should lead us to hate our sin. And that it would lead us to be reminded that your grace is not only, not only do we not deserve it, but it's our only hope. So Lord, I pray that you would simply send your spirit to be at work in the lives of your people right now, particularly those who don't know who you are yet, or even those who think they know who you are. And Lord, as we transition into tithes and offerings, Lord, this is a, a time where we are still worshiping. This is a time where we get to tangibly demonstrate the work that you're doing in us by giving sacrificially, relinquishing the control that we have, and ultimately worshiping uh, you for what you've done and how you've provided in our lives. 
So I pray that these next few moments in, in giving and through the announcements and then ultimately communion, I pray that through these moments, this time is not wasted by your saints. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.